love. People are really excited about the mission. Fun, yes, fun and shocking. I mean, we have been told, I mean, we have been led to believe, we in the press and in the American public, that the mythic swing voter is some white dude in a diner in the Midwest. And I feel like your work tears that myth apart. Good afternoon. This is your captain speaking with just a little flight information. We're flying at an altitude of 37,000 feet and our airspeed is 400 miles an hour. A couple little facts here. I'm packing a Colt King Cobra. That's a 357 caliber firearm with a black rubber grip and a six inch barrel. Capable of piercing body armor at a distance of up to 27 feet. And I can put a hole in human bone and flesh the size of the Grand Canyon, which, by the way, is coming up on the left hand side of the plane. So just sit back and relax and enjoy the rest of the plane. No, not you. Not you. Your organization's terrible. Should I tell you? Should I tell you? Oh, you're Boy Scouts, but you know life. You know life. You know I'm totally off script right now. Hello. This is Shane. And, and I am Asher. And this is News Dive. Uh, <clears throat> today is... Thursday, September 15th, at the time of recording. And here's this week's rundown. Long-awaited legislation banning members of Congress from being able to trade individual stocks is ready to come to a vote this week, says Nancy Pelosi. Though the very next day, Democrats come out and say that they are going to wait until after the midterms. Hubbard County District Judge Jana Alstad issued a ruling shielding the indigenous-led Jinnyu Collective's Camp Numawag, where <laughs> opponents organized resistance to Enbridge's Line 3 tar sands pipeline, from local law enforcement's unlawful blockades and harassment. In the first 250 days of 2022, Israeli forces have conducted at least 2,200 raids in occupied West Bank and have killed at least 140 Palestinians while injuring nearly 7,000. A leading government ethics watchdog on Tuesday renewed calls to ban members of Congress from trading stocks during their terms in office after the New York Times published a major investigation revealing that nearly 100 U.S. lawmakers reported trades in companies influenced by their committees. New U.S. Census Bureau figures published Tuesday show that the boosted child tax credit enacted by congressional Democrats last year helped fuel a major plunge in child poverty. Historic progress that is now under threat thanks to Senator Joe Manchin's opposition to keeping the program running in 2020 and beyond. In Britain, people are now being arrested just for saying things like, who elected him? about the newly crowned King Charles III. It's a shocking authoritarian clampdown, and it's being applauded by the supposedly pro-free speech right. Two unions representing 125,000 active and retired rail employees stressed Thursday that the tentative agreement they reached with freight carriers to avert a strike still must win approval from rank-and-file members, a reminder that 
came as White House hailed the deal as uh, it helped uh, help broker as a victory for workers and the economy. New survey data released Monday shows just 12% of Americans think healthcare in the United States is handled extremely or very well. Further evidence of the deep unpopularity of a profit-driven system that has left roughly 30 million without insurance coverage and contributed to the country's stunning decline in life expectancy. Okay, now we move on to uh, Lindsey Graham, who has proposed a a national-wide uh, 15-week abortion ban, which he is claiming is a late-term abortion ban. But I have no idea when 15-week uh, abortions have ever been considered late-term in any context. Right. To put it into perspective, the normal pregnancy, uh, full-term pregnancy, would be around 40 weeks. Um, dividing that into trimesters, 15 weeks would be just past the first trimester, which would be around 13 weeks. And uh, what, what is it, like 90% of abortions happen in that first trimester? Oh, something something like that. It's yeah. it's really close. So um, it's a, a high percentage of abortions take place in the first trimester. Uh, a very small percentage take place after that. And usually abortions that take place after that first trimester are usually... Uh, scenarios where either the, the the mother's life is at risk or something happened with the pregnancy where the uh its fetus is no longer viable yeah there there was the the republicans in ohio introduced in 2019 and governor dewine signed what they called a heartbeat bill um opponents have started calling it the forced birth bill because it was designed to block abortions after six weeks, just six weeks. By that time, many women don't actually even know that they are pregnant. It has led to a lot of controversy in Ohio, uh, with 10-year-old rape victims being forced to flee the state to get an abortion for a pregnancy that they can't carry, generally. A judge in Cincinnati, uh, Hamilton County, just actually blocked that bill for two weeks while he continues to review the bill. Um, it was ushered into action very shortly after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. So it's like anything currently in Ohio, uh, abortions are going up to 20 to 22 weeks, which is still not even into the third trimester where Roe had limited, uh, but it's only going to be two weeks is all people in Ohio are going to get. And yeah. the first day of that is already done. And so obviously and anything like 15 weeks, calling it late term. Uh, no. Yeah. And then Graham's bill also allows states to enact more restrictions. So even under his ban, states like Ohio will be able to keep their way more restrictive bans. Mm -hmm. And then also written into the language of the bill uh, is that 
the the ex, the rape exception for minors only applies if the doctor gets a documentation from law enforcement reporting the rape and uh, which is, is strange because by definition 10 year olds cannot consent yes so if a 10 year old is pregnant that is a rape regardless so i telling a 10 year old that's a fifth grader making a fifth grader go to law enforcement to report a rape that's pretty extreme like yeah they should if they can but i'm not going to be telling fifth graders what they need to do that that is nowhere near my lane and then uh we can talk about the uh, police side of this that uh police are notoriously bad at handling sexual assault cases uh even for uh, adult women and then you we have thousands hundreds of thousands of untested rape kits that date back all the way to like the 1980s in some departments have cases have kits that are untested that are dated back to the 80s so women that were claimed to be raped 40 years ago kits have not been tested yet yeah it's it is remarkable um i know there in the 60s and 70s there was actually a tv show called all in the family um it played it replayed a lot on tv land in the 2000s early 2010s um and one of the main characters edith um was almost raped in an episode and the show was so popular at the time they actually warned law enforcement ahead of time we're airing an episode that is going to be very sensitive it will show one of our characters almost being raped and then at the end of it she's going to go report it to law enforcement given the popularity of this show we expect that law enforcement agencies across the country are going to start seeing more and more women come forward because this character came forward but still it's when you have so many hurdles you have to climb like what what were you wearing um did you like it things like that it's it's very discouraging to report the crime and if you do report the crime and manage to make it to court that's another headache and a half it's remarkable i i don't understand it yep and we have a we have a clip here of lindsey graham responding to uh a question about his uh, bill that uh, from a mother who found out that her fetus had an anomaly after 16 weeks leading to a non-viable pregnancy and she she asked uh she asked she asked uh, Senator Graham basically, like, what what do you tell women that are in that scenario? Because if in her scenario that even though her pregnancy was non-viable since it was 16 weeks, she would have been under Graham's bill. She would be forced to carry that until the end of her term. But so here's what Senator Graham 
response is. What would you say to somebody like me who found out that there's an anomaly that would make me compatible life in 16 weeks? I had regular appointments, I did everything I'm right, and at 16 weeks we found out that our son would likely not yep. live. When he was born, he lived for eight days. Yeah. He bled from every orifice of his body, but we were allowed to make that choice for him. Right. Would you be robbing that choice from those women? What do you say to someone like me? Here's what I would say the world pretty much has spoken on this issue. Uh, the developed world has said at this stage into the, the pregnancy, uh, the child feels pain, and and we're so so. Lindsey Graham, his first response to the woman who asked what she what he would say to a woman who pregnancy is non viable after after the expiration after the the ban limit, and his first response is like, oh well. I would first I would tell the women is that this is what the world has decided on. So just oh the world has decided when you're allowed the world has decided that you no longer have control over your own body basically. So it it's remarkable that that is his first go to that the fetus feels pain. I don't know of a single instance in his career where he has given a single care about a child who is hungry and is going through hunger pains. He has never really voted on any meaningful health care legislation that would impact pain for children or adults. So for him to go take a stand for fetal pain, I mean... It might be too on the nose to call this baby steps, but maybe he's starting on the wrong end of the scale. <laughs> and I would uh, speculate here that like a lot of uh, cons Republicans willingness to speak out about fetal pain, but refuse to care at all about like child hunger in this country which we mentioned earlier that might be going up uh is because you don't have to provide anything for a fetus uh, i mean hungry children that provide that means passing bills passing welfare things republicans don't like fetuses yeah. fetuses don't need welfare yeah, Fetus, it's... fetuses don't need government expenditure. Fetuses are fetuses. They're in the mother's womb, and they just want to. And they just want. They want. They want a virtue signal that they actually care about something. Some group of people that they actually care about is the one group of people that they don't actually have to do anything for. Well, I mean, the the pregnant woman will need additional things but the the fetus itself it, it's not like it's you know I'm able saying, to call I'm more, it's, I'm more talking about it, like the political aspect of it yeah, it's like it, it's in, not in like the, in terms of rhetoric it's like like when it comes to rhetoric like you just have to be like we just need the ban of abortions and we save the fetuses whereas like to right. like end child hunger like that you need a lot more or, Right. It's it's not like a fetus is calling their congressman. No. 
they they can't do that. That's that's not a thing. Um, I would argue that even up to a few years, they're probably not calling their congressmen. They're probably not like us calling them at age four. But I, still, it's like the he. This is such a virtue signal, and I realize we can you know walk and chew gum at the same time as every democrat likes to say doing one thing does not mean we can't do something else but the virtue signaling here focusing on fetal pain instead of human pain is remarkable to yeah. me a little more of the clip saying we're going to join the rest of the world and not be like Iran. As to your particular case, there'll be exceptions for life. I mean, if we want to discuss fetal pain, what about Fallujah? Yeah. What about Baghdad, where babies are born completely deformed and live for hours before they die? in part due to results from bombs that our country dropped on them. Yep. I, I, I don't know if you've ever seen those photos, I but They're... I needed a minute after seeing them because it was shocking. Yep. They're not a pretty sight. That's for sure. The mother and rape and incest. There but are uh... exceptions in this bill. Well, ma'am, this, this, there were 55,000 abortions uh, after the 15-week period, and I think we're resolved to get America back in line with... And then she asked, uh, what about the exceptions, and Lindsey Graham uh, basically ignores it. So, there's, there's Lindsey Graham for you. All right, moving on. CNN in recent months has uh, changed course in the way that they uh, cover news. Uh, under the Donald Trump administration, they were like hardcore anti-Trump. Uh, really would look for any reason to like dunk on trump i mean there's plenty of reasons to dunk on trump he was a terrible president but it's like even for a ridiculous thing it's like i i remember i remember seeing cnn articles that were like donald trump ordered ice cream and and he got two scoops while everyone else got one like stupid right, stuff that, like that yeah that was i remember reading that that he requested two scoops of ice cream for official dinners while Everyone else was only allowed to have one scoop. Yeah. Meanwhile, you you turn the channel to Fox and they just had a couple of months ago Biden ice cream watch. Apparently, Joe Biden left the White House and went to a Jenny's ice cream and got two scoops of ice cream. <laughs> and the meltdown from Fox News was remarkable. I mean, they <laughs> it it was like a national tragedy to them. I mean, they were reporting it, the time is now 2.37 p.m. And we've just received word that Joe Biden has left the White House and he has been seen inside of a Jenny's ice cream. Uh, we're getting in reports that he has had two scoops of what appeared to be vanilla and possibly pistachio 
Now, why is Joe Biden uh, getting ice cream when America is under attack from et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the southern border, drug crisis, inflation, opioids, everything else that they always throw out? But they blew it up over him getting an ice cream once. It wasn't like a rule. Joe Biden gets two scoops of ice cream every day. It was he went to get an ice cream. Yeah. The, the party of that believes in freedom doesn't really want our president to be able to go buy an ice cream cone. Yeah. And Remarkable. I, and like, I don't care about I don't care if Joe Biden goes and buys an ice cream cone. I don't care if Donald Trump gets two scoops of ice cream. I would prefer if I would prefer if CNN was covering Trump's drone strikes in the Middle East more than his diet. Which right. I mean, we all know is his diet was terrible. Like, we, and we know we, that because we, CNN focused on it so yeah. much. But but now but now since the Biden administration has taken over, they have uh, shifted more to a more centrist uh, position. They're they're giving. Well, they right- claim it's centrist. They they claim that they are being more centrist, but I would say as centrist being like in between Republicans and Democrats, they're they're starting to give more uh, legitimacy to like right wing narratives. They're like I saw there was one time Jake Tapper uh, had an interview with Dan Crenshaw, and Jake Tapper basically just let him spew nonsense for several minutes with no pushback whatsoever i mean that that is based on the assumption that jake tapper was hired to do journalism i mean jake tapper is probably the worst he's one of the only people at cnn that i cannot stand you know anderson cooper talk to me don lemon go ahead wolf blitzer i can deal with you John King, touch the magic wall, baby. Jake Tapper. I mean, when he sat there, when former UN Secretary, uh, Ambassador to the UN from the United States, John Bolton, said, as a person who has helped plan coup d'etat, January 6th was not a coup d'etat. And Jake Tapper did not ask any follow-up questions. Like, oh, which country did you do a coup in? Where have you helped plan coups? Why are you an expert on planning coups? Yeah. None of that. There was there was no question. There was no pushback. It was just they just moved on. Oh, I see. And and uh, in addition to not asking, you know, former Ambassador Bolton those questions. By allowing him to go unchecked, he legitimized the fact that the insurrection we watched on CNN, where he was giving commentary, was not actually a coup. I mean, I know that the gallows that they brought probably wouldn't have worked. But it's it's but the, if it's, they're shouting hang Mike Pence and trying to kill Congress people. If it's not a successful coup, that's a good thing. Yes. But it looks like they sure as hell tried to have one. Like, like intent matters. 
when when a large mob shows up to the capital and they're building gallows some of them have uh, zip tie handcuffs you you hear reports that like the oath keepers had like weapon weapon caches hidden like right outside the city to to bring in when whenever they thought they would uh were ready for them like they like they were ready <laughs> it's just that uh they didn't have the support from donald trump that they thought they were going to have because if you listen to mean, if you listen to a lot of the people who were there that day they were expecting they were expecting like backup from Donald Trump in some way whether it like whether it was from like from like the military coming in like they 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 deluded themselves to the point where like and then when nothing happened they kind of all just like went home and then were eventually hunted down by the FBI because right they, and and that gets into the January 6th committee's investigation in which Cassidy Hutchinson, who I think is 25 years old, she's incredibly young to be, you know, testifying before Congress about an insurrection. Um, but the fact that she, as an aide to Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, heard people describing Donald Trump trying to grab the wheel of Army One, the beast, his limo, to try to drive it forcibly to the Capitol so he could give an address. I I feel like, yeah, he was trying to get there. And then, <laughs> and then you have and then you have uh, senators. I think it was I think I think one of them was uh, was it Ron Johnson or was it maybe even was Tommy Tuberville? I it was some Republican senator. Their their staff member w were trying to get a list of fake electors to Mike Pence. Yeah, for, that so, was Ron Johnson. Yeah, for Ron. <laughs> uh, Who's up for re-election this year? By yeah, the way, so Ron Johnson was trying to get a list of fake electors. Two mm -hmm. Pence. So when Pence went up there to certify the election and saw that there were two sets of electors, that he would then send it back to the states. Right. That was that was a text message that was sent from I think it was Ron Johnson's chief of staff. Uh, certainly, someone on his staff texted Mike Pence's staffer and said, "Hey, I have something that the." Uh, the senator has asked me to give to the vice president. The staffer replied, well, what is it? And uh, Johnson's person said, it's a list of alternate electors from, and I forget which state it was. It might have been Wisconsin. Yeah, I think it was Wisconsin. Uh, and the staffer for Pence said, he will not be accepting that. Like, they tried so many ways. Like, how many ways do you have to try a coup for John Bolton to be able to say, yeah, no, that was a coup? Yeah. Or an attempt at a coup? Yeah. So, here, uh, let me read a little bit of this article out of FAIR. Uh, CNN's new police expert uh, doesn't hold up to the facts. In its latest move to the right, 
CNN uh, recently hired former NYPD flack John Miller as its chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst. Miller has spun the revolving door between law enforcement and media like perhaps no one else, moving back and forth between jobs at NYPD, FBI, ABC, and CBS. Last year, while working for the NYPD, Miller falsely testified that there was no evidence that the that the department had spied on Muslims in mosques when, in fact, the AP had won a Pulitzer in 2012 for uncovering how, after 9-11, the NYPD systematically spied on Muslim neighbors, listened in on sermons, infiltrated colleges, and photographed law-abiding residents. Uh, predictably, within days of joining CNN, Miller offered up a healthy dose of dishonest propaganda to help the audience, uh, network's audience. On CNN New Day, John Aker, John Berman brought up the issue of crime in New York City, noting that murder and shooting rates have fallen over the past year and asking Miller to explain how that was achieved. Miller replied, well, I know uh, how it was achieved because I was there, and that was achieved by extraordinarily smart developments, which is the Bronx was driving the shooting numbers for the city a year ago. They flooded the Bronx with police officers on overtime. They flooded the Bronx with police officers working a sixth or seventh day. They shifted tours around. They were very strategic, watching every shooting, every dot on the map, and pushing resources there, and they were able to suppress that. Berman then asked Miller how to, uh, how to explain the seeming anomaly that you can get the murder... Uh, uh, you can get the murder right and shooting down, but robbery, felony assaults, and overall crime are up. Miller responded, When you take the larceny, burglary, auto theft, uh, these are all covered under New York's new bail reform laws, which is criminals know, criminals know have a really very good intelligence, as good as the police when it comes to collecting information distributing among each other. Uh, they know that there are certain charges where the judge in New York State, not not just New York City, is legally prohibited prohibited by law from setting bail in that case. So they know I commit uh, the crime. If I get caught, I'll be as soon I'll be out as soon as I get my hearing. Uh, now that has caused revisitism, which is always a problem to skyrocket. So basically, when you uh, look at the larceny, the robberies which are just larcenies where someone tried to stop them. The burglaries, the auto thefts, we have people, John, coming from New Jersey where they have plenty of cars to steal cars in New York City because they know if they get caught, they will not go to jail, end quote. So in some, some crimes are down because police have flooded crime-ridden neighborhoods, but that same flood of police has nothing to do with the increase in other crimes because of bail reform. Unsurprisingly, this, uh, this is the exact argument uh, Miller's former employer, the New York mayor and former cop Eric, Am Eric Adams, have been making recently based on data that they will not publicly release, and that contradicts all actually available data. Curi curiously, when shootings were up in 2020 and other crimes were down, the NYPD's argument that it, the NYPD's argument had it that that was the result of bail reform. At the time, the total uh, mendency was called out by even on right-wing, cop-loving, Murdoch-owned New York Post, 
Now with the crime rates reversed, the NYPD and its allies are hoping the baseless bail reform blame will stick on a different target. I mean, the thing with bail reform that we have to keep in mind, bail means that if you are wealthy enough, you get to not wait in jail until your trial. If you don't have money, you do have to wait in jail until your trial. It, it's not like that is fair in any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, just keep to say, oh, if you are if you're a, a billionaire or a, a multimillionaire and you commit a murder. And then if you have, you know, a million dollars to pay your bail. All of a sudden you're you're allowed to go walk around and do it again. Yeah, it it, 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 keeps it is poor, such it keeps preferential treatment. Right. Right. For so, longer. Yeah. So here's here's the next part. Uh, contrary to the evidence, in fact, murder and shooting rates are down slightly nationwide uh, after two years of increases. Uh, criminal justice observers note that while one should always be cautious in attempting to explain short-term changes in the crime rates because of the many interacting factors involved, the nationwide shift strongly points to national rather than local causes. Foremost among them, the major social and economic dislocations caused by the COVID-19 pandemic that have diminished as pandemic-related restrictions have lifted. Gun sales in particular have mostly dropped since the spring of 2021 after a massive spike from March 2020 through January 2021, a surge in available weaponry that surely encouraged the rise in gun-related crimes like homicide and shootings. Indeed, it would be very surprising if the NYPD were able to significantly reduce shooting rates by, quote, flooding the Bronx with police officers, as most research has found no or minimum reductions in violent crime with increased policing, including in New York City. Instead, more, more cops mostly translates into more arrests for lower-level crimes, and the substitutional cults, uh, those more, impose more heavily policed communities. So basically, when you send just over police communities, you just end up like end up more people in jail for lower tier tier crimes. Like that's how you get more uh, like people just right. uh, being uh, arrested for just say like they're just like smoking a joint or something more often. Right? They're not. They're right. not. They're not there stopping shootings. They're there like harassing. They're harassing people at the park. Right. I remember a couple of years ago, it was after AOC first took office. So this this a bit dated, but I remember there was a jail for the city of New York, either in her district or around her district. And apparently the air conditioning had broken or something in the building. And so all of the people in the jail were begging for help because they were roasting alive in a giant concrete building in the middle of New York City. And I remember that a report came out that most of the people in the jail had not been found guilty. They were just awaiting trial. 
So it's not like these are hardened criminals who are being punished by being put into a lockbox, which, by the way, shouldn't happen anyway. That's a form of torture. These were people who haven't even been found guilty. Like, this is such an extreme level when we're discussing bail reform. Like, it's ridiculous. Yeah, and then... And the the New York State's 2019 bail reform prohibited bail for most misdemeanors and nonviolent felony charges and required judges to consider the person's ability to pay when setting bail. Other states and cities have pursued similar reforms. These reforms have reduced the number of people in jail awaiting trial because actually actually upholding the principle of innocent until proven guilty, which the current justice system in the United States actually is the opposite, where like you're treated as guilty until you're proven innocent, where whereas like this given bail to like minor crimes allows you to be set uh, free until you're actually uh, tried, which is how it's supposed to work. Yeah. Um, and then and now uh, that said, I understand if they keep, you know, people accused of murder behind bars for until their trial so that they can't go murder other people like i i understand the question of severity of crime being used to justify maintaining people what i don't understand is making cost a barrier to that if the jails and the prisons in this country are so overloaded that we have needed to continue building more, which we shouldn't even be doing, maybe we can save on those costs by not throwing in low-level offenders before they have been found guilty of something. Yes, and then, uh, and according to all available evidence since the bail reform went into place, there hasn't it hasn't led there's no evidence that it led to increased uh crime and in the most comprehensive assessment of the impact of bail reform on re revisitism which is uh when uh people revisit jail for like a second after they've already been yeah. convicted re recidivism yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, in new york city the city's office of criminal justice reported that of as of june 2021 pretrial rearrest rates uh, the recidivism Miller claimed was skyrocketing because they know if they get caught, they will not go to jail, remained consistent over time and has not changed with the bail reform and is, is still around 4%. And fewer than 1% are arrested for felonies like auto theft and burglary. Moreover, rollbacks in spring 2020 to these reforms allow judges to set bail for even nonviolent felony cases that involved persistent felony offenders which means revisitism i can't say that word miller recidivism i got you and miller and the nypd are highlighting are not impacted by uh bail reform in other words basically everything miller said about new york city crime is it was false pro-punishment propaganda and that's what passes for objectivity at today's cnn yeah no they they've fallen off CNN was not good to begin with. Uh, I used to watch it all the time because I wanted to get 
the headlines. And a little bit of detail past the headlines. There's no longer that. There is Rick Santorum sitting around a table with um, David Gergen, um, you know, David Axelrod, and a whole bunch of other very partisan people trying to explain why they're right. And I feel like giving equal time to fascists Probably not a good idea. Now, I have read that the reason CNN is panning this far right is that they have accepted the possibility that Donald Trump will be um, elected in 2024. However, I dispute that because if anyone at all knows anything about fascism or authoritarianism, they're not going to forgive you for past treatment. Like, like kissing the ring now yes. is not going to save you. You are already on his shit list. Yeah, like, I don't know if they realize that. I, I think they do. But I also think they're trying yeah. to butter him up a bit. Which, if you're a journalist, if you're a member of the press, you shouldn't be buttering anything except toast. Like, you have no business doing it. Your job, your function is to be a non-governmental check on power. Yeah, Your job is to speak truth to power and get answers from power, not to butter up to power. But this is a big change that we started to see happen, you know, even in the George Bush era. I know um, Dan Rather, when he worked at CBS, had a really big story. Um, about George Bush and his, you know, National Guard record. But the editors and the people at CBS did not want to run it. And he later found out that it was because they were wanting a more favorable FCC to them. And if they ran a story against a sitting president, the president could likely, you know, push the FCC to hurt CBS. So it it really started around the George Bush era where they just buttered everything up. Woodward and Bernstein are basically gone. Like, they're still alive. They're still with us. But people who speak in Woodward and Bernstein's investigative ability no longer work for CNN or, you know, Washington Post. I mean, what do we have at the New York Times? We've got Maggie Haberman, who how long does she sit on giant stories until her book is about to come out? Like forever. It's like if you want to learn more about Donald Trump, just give her more book publishing deals. And then all of a sudden you're going to learn things you should have learned three years ago. Yeah, but. There, there's there's a lot of things that have come out about like Trump that late a lot later than they should have because these people hold these facts for their book to promote their book when like this should be public knowledge from the beginning. It's 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 
it's more about uh they're making it more about themselves rather than actually like doing their job and providing the information to the public and i just like to say that that the the uh the the fair centrist going down the middle between republicans and democrats is not the same as doing objective journalism because because like there are, could be issues that republicans and democrats are both wrong on and if you're just hearing both of their sides you're not going to get the full picture right it's we basically changed the way journalism functions in this country it we gave so much deference to well fair and balanced means we hear both sides equally however instead of airing both sides maybe fair and balanced means fact checking both sides maybe fair and balanced means holding both sides accountable yeah if you just do anything that they say if you just let both sides lie well, what's good is it Right. And I'm not trying to say that the Democrats are the same as the Republicans. Far from it. Like, I, I believe me, I know the difference between a Democrat and a Republican at this point. But if you are in the press, and I'm not talking about like the broader media where you can get, you know, tabloids and all that other stuff. If you are in the press, if you are a reporter journalist for a political piece, a political beat, Fair and balanced is not D versus R. It's government v people. What do the people need to hear? What do they need to know? Where are the tapes? That that kind of a a thing. Yeah. But they they think fair and balanced is half dim, half Republican because they can pay a couple of people to uh, you know come on, give opinions. Um, from a very, very partisan standpoint. And then they get access. And then they get access, yeah. Oh, well, we get access to all these new hits. Okay, well, what are you doing with the information you're getting? Nothing. Nothing. So. Alright. So. Yeah, that's what's going on with CNN. Now we move out to Los Angeles, where... A a uh, civilian oversight commissioner, uh, Patty uh, Giggins, Patty Giggin, uh, has been investigating the uh, L.A. Police Department, uh, uh, investigating into alleged gangs that are inside the L.A. Police Department, and. If you want more information, you can just Google uh, LAPD gangs. I know the, the Gravel Institute has a good uh, video about them. Uh, well, and she's been investigating them. And the other day, she received a knock at the door from the uh, LAPD. And there is... Video, and you can see video circulating on social media of cops 
carrying boxes out of this in, uh, this civilian oversight commissioner's home. How's Arden doing? She happy? Uh, her her lawyer she claims that she claims that uh, they took like laptops and USB drops. With? People are asking the police what unit they're from. And then also the police then then towed her car. Uh, her her attorney says that there there's nothing in the warrant about taking her car away. And that the sheriff investigators had already searched the car earlier. And then, and then should mention that back in 2021, uh, the the district attorney said that they would not defend a warrant a, a, in this particular case. So the police came in and. Uh, did this raid of this person's home who was investigating the police and just took everything knowing that they don't have any prosecutorial support which says that this is which tells me that this is basically just police harassment and trying to scare their critics away from investigating them just a stunning display of harassment from the from the Los Angeles Police Department that is notorious for it, their their alleged gang activities there are multiple gangs in the department and with with like and like some of these gangs have rituals which involve like killing innocent people to be in, initiated and stuff like that so it's just really uh dark stuff and it, the journal the the journalist who originally broke the story about the gangs within the department had to be put into witness to, uh, protection uh, to the witness protection and fear of retaliation from the department as well so it's just it's just it's really scary to be someone investigating the police <laughs> then uh <clears throat> go Moving on to Texas, where where a teacher was f fired because because Texas uh, has been banning books left and right, whatever books they don't particularly agree with, whether it's based on whether it's from uh, about like sexual orientation or it's about history. Whatever, they're they're banning books. So a teacher in Texas basically explained to her kids that there are banned books, and if the children would be interested in these books, that they should go and get a library card, and that they would be able to read whatever book they want whenever. And like I, I don't know who would have a problem with kids getting library cards, but apparently the state of Texas does because they then fired her, and then after they fired her, the Secretary of Education of Texas, Ryan Walters, went on Twitter 
uh, saying that uh, calling for her to lose her teaching li teacher's license for sexualizing her classroom. And it... Not... Hold on. I made a mistake. This is not Texas. This is Oklahoma. The secretary... Ryan Walter, secretary of state of Oklahoma. My bad. <laughs> Just assuming everything's Texas. But yeah, so, so now, so now we're in a situation where uh, uh, teachers are now losing their jobs and possibly their teacher's licenses for just suggesting that their kids go get a library card. Uh, now we go to Texas, where a, a district judge ruled that requiring employers to provide health coverage for uh PrEP drugs, which prevent transmission of HIV, violates employers' religious freedom. Uh, and the company, the company who brought involved in the suit, uh, argued that covering the drugs would uh, mean what did they say? Would be uh, uh, participating in the promotion of homosexual behavior. Or something like that. Just, just ensuring, just preventing people uh, like medical medical care because they're the the company's uh, owner doesn't religiously agree with it, so they're just going to ban it through the the law through the judiciary. We're just another example of us sliding backwards. Uh, if we remember the uh, HIV AIDS crisis of the 1980s, which Ronald Reagan completely ignored because they saw it as a disease that mainly just affected gay people, and they thought that it would just. Uh, and they didn't, and Ronald Reagan didn't do anything until they learned that it was actually affecting straight people, like several years later. And uh, thousands, thousands of LGBTQ people died as a result of this neglect. And we're starting to see this again from the religious right once again and and punishing uh people for being gay basically it's fascinating because thinking about prep you know it's i think it's around 90 percent effective at preventing the transmission of hiv in gay men and around 70 percent effective in transmitting uh, in preventing the transmission of HIV in um, in drug users who share needles, you know. So, of course, you know, Gilead Pharmacy, when they first got the patent rights to it, um, the drug was developed with CDC money, uh, but they had the patent, and they were charging around... 12 to 1800 dollars a month for a month's supply of that drug um 
I remember the head of Gilead Pharma was taken to task when AOC was in um, a committee hearing. And she said, well, your drug is around, you know, $1,400 in the United States. Why is it $6 in Australia? And they just flat out said, because we don't have patent protections in Australia. Well, fast forward. Now there is finally um, a generic for Truvada. The generic initially came out a few hundred dollars cheaper, but it was still over a thousand dollars for a, for a one month supply. Well, their exclusivity has now dropped back a bit. And you can actually go online right now and purchase it for $16.80 for a one month supply. The manufacturing cost is $12. 15% markup for profits, $3 for pharmacy labor, and $5 for shipping added at checkout. Like it is $16.80. Would have been doing this for ages. It's not like the generic has less in it, but. Yeah, it's, a, it's just the us being held hostage by Big Pharma. We, we saw this. We see this. We see this all the time, where uh, pharma companies abuse uh, patent protections to just charge an arm and a leg for drugs, and that's why drug prices in this country are so expensive because our government just lets these companies uh, get away with it, and people yeah. and people die because of it. I want to. I want to talk about this. The segment from MSNBC that I saw earlier today about a focus group on less engaged political voters and political opportunities. And I just, I just found the reaction of the host to it very interesting. So uh, I think that the guy, the guy who ran this focus group, uh, he, uh, he's from the odd save american america guys uh the, he went and talked to people who aren't really aware of politics like if you go and look uh he he'll, he'll ask like who who's your congressperson and and what do you do you think they're doing a good job and people and then the person people in the focus group was like i have no idea who any congress people are those kinds those kinds of people and what the what this focus group found is that what what pe these types of people care about are uh, kitchen table issues, uh, being able to pay their bills, uh, housing costs, medical costs. These are what these people care about. Well, here's the uh, here's MSNBC. Joining us now is John Favreau, former speechwriter for President Obama. He, of course, co-hosts the, co the podcast Pod Save America and is also the host of The Wilderness, a podcast about the history and future of the Democratic Party. John, thank you for being with us tonight and congratulations on running such a successful focus group, I think. 
<laughs> that was fun to listen to, huh? People are really excited about the mission. Fun. Yes, fun and shocking. I mean, we have been told, I mean, we have been led to believe, we in the press and in the American public, that the mythic swing voter is some white dude in a diner in the Midwest. And I feel like your work tears that myth apart. What have you found out in so, yeah, so this host from MSNBC is like, what you have found is quite shocking. Wait, you're shocked that people care about being able to pay their bills? Like, you, you're, you're shocked? You're shocked that people, like, care more about uh, being able to make rent more than they care about... Uh, the January 6th committee or or uh, whatever MSNBC goes on and on about all the time. And like, don't get me wrong, the January 6th committee is very important, but uh, they, they talk about that way too much and refuse to focus on on issues like like costs of living. I mean, how how many how many segments does MSNBC run on the cost of healthcare? Uh, not much. And then you, and then they go to the commercial, and you see a Pfizer commercial. Travels across this great country about who swing voters actually are. Yeah, so that's one of the reasons that I did this series is because, you know, the 81 million people that showed up to vote against Donald Trump in 2020, a very small percentage of them, as you mentioned, actually follow the news closely. Most people who actually vote don't have a preformed political opinion. They're not super ideological. They're not super partisan. They just show up on election day and they pick between two candidates. So I wanted to talk to some of these people. And I talked to black voters in Atlanta. I talked to working class Latino voters in Las Vegas. I talked to disengaged Democrats in Pittsburgh. That group was uh, young voters in Orange County. Uh, Katie Porter is actually their member of Congress. And they all voted for Joe Biden in 2020, but they're not sure what they're gonna do in 2022. And when you talk to these voters, what really comes through is the issues that they they care about, the issues they talk about the most are trying to make their rent, trying to own a home, uh, the cost of gas, the cost of food. Uh, they, they all talked about abortion. Uh, that came up a lot after, because all of these focus groups were in the wake of the Dobbs decision. Uh, some of these voters talked about gun violence. So they, they talk about a whole series of issues, but issues that really affect their lives. And I ask all these groups, you know, what issues does yeah. the uh, media cover too much and, politic and politicians talk about too much and what issues do they not talk about enough? And almost every group said, January 6th, elections, politics, that all gets talked about way too much by politicians in the media. And no one's talking enough about housing, rent, food costs. Um, so it, they, they feel disconnected from politics because they don't think politicians are speaking about the issues that matter most to them. I mean, listen, I'm guilty of talking a lot about January 6th, but not so much Me because too. it's necessarily <laughs> a sensational story, but because none of it matters if we have a democracy that doesn't fundamentally function, right? You can't do anything about economic policy or student debt or the climate. No, I mean, she, she has a fair point there at the end, but I would also say that there, that type of coverage has, has, has partly, at least, has led us to this moment. Uh, Amer American American trust in media is at an all-time low, and it's because 
people don't feel like the news covers their interests. And this this focus group really highlights that. And like and like she even admits it that she's guilty of that. I I just thought that was just a very interesting clip to share. Do you have anything to respond? I mean, not much. It just shows how out of touch people get when they get money. Yeah. Like, 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 anyone, they are like being, anyone who hosts an MSNBC show is being paid a good amount of money and they don't really have to worry about not being able to pay their bills. Their finances are covered. They don't have the reason why they don't focus on like, on uh cost of living is because their cost of living is uh taken care of now if we were to pay them less and pay local print journalists more then maybe we would not be in such a news drought we are in basically a news drought a whole lot of communities in the country have one local paper and that local paper is usually staffed by one or maybe two people who really, truly do not have time to cover all of the things that are happening in their community. And so they end up relying on the big, you know, like the, the big regional papers um, to do a lot of the heavy lifting and subscribing to a wire service of stories that they can use. Yeah, and then and so it's it's like shocking. Like if if we were to balance the pay scale out a little bit, then maybe we could revitalize local journalism. We could revitalize community journalism, and then all of a sudden, the t t media anchors will be able to understand what it's like to live in not being a part of the top 1% of the country. Yeah. And then you also say that the reason why like uh journalism uh journalist rooms have been gutted like they have is the way that we the way that funding media has changed. Where in the in the past uh media relied on subscription models where like they were basically funded directly from their viewers and readers. Whereas in modern day times, uh, outlets, uh, they get their funding from advertisers. And then right. the big networks like MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, they get paid millions of dollars to run ads for their millions of viewers from big companies. And it, you're, you'd be na naive to think that that doesn't affect their coverage of these companies as well. So there's also right. so there's also that aspect of it as well. They I, have, I have, will give they, credit. They have no they have no reason to uh, serve their audience. Like Fox News can just get away with just telling you crap all day because they don't need their audience. They don't they even though they know their audi their audience will watch. It's like they. They get their funding elsewhere. They get their funding from uh, advertising. They get their money from the dark money. Is the 
Right. Well, what's interesting is there is actually um, an effort to change that. Um, and you might want to call them independent journalists. I don't know if that would be a correct term um, because I feel like the term independent journalism um, kind of gets misrepresented a lot by people who want to say an opinion and call it independent journalism. Um, so I, I don't like that term because it's not typically used well, but there's a group that I, I actually really like called States Newsroom. And they have been, they were initially funded by a grant, but their pay model is if you want to give us money, we will take it. If you are a person who's interested in our reporting, they do not run ads ever. They offer all of their work on a basically like a share alike uh, license so that if you want to reprint their article, you can do so if you give them appropriate credit. Um, you can you know, use their article in basically any non-commercial work. And so they are quite literally funded by the people and not even by their subscribers because their articles are freely available everywhere. And what they typically cover, now they do have a few national reporters, but their biggest focus is what's happening in state capitals because states are where most legislation gets passed try getting anything through congress right now good luck state houses churn legislation on a daily basis um so basically they created a solution to make sure that people can freely access quality journalism about their state government and about national points of interest um, through a few of their national reporters. And it's really good. I mean, I they tend to seemingly lean a bit left, but that's because I feel like we're so used to so much right-leaning news that it's hard to discern what is left and what is not left anymore, what is right and what is not right anymore. Um, but they're they're a really good outlet. I I really like them. We'll we'll have to cover some of their stories sometime on the podcast. Yeah. So what you have on us on the on Patagonia? Okay. So this is what's really interesting about Patagonia. I don't know uh, if you own anything that is Patagonia. No. Uh, I I don't own anything that's Patagonia. So the founder of Patagonia. Uh, his name is Yvonne Schoenard. He founded the company about 50 years ago. He just sold the entire company to Earth. He did something that has quite literally never been done before. And I want to read uh, the letter that he posted on uh, Patagonia.com about the decisions that they made. Um, keep in mind that this man 
yesterday was worth about three billion dollars. About three billion. Um, it starts out. I never wanted to be a businessman. I started as a craftsman, making climbing gear for my friends and myself, then got into apparel. As we began to witness the extent of global warming and ecological destruction and our own contribution to it, Patagonia committed to using our company to change the way business was done. If we could do the right thing while making enough to pay the bills, we could influence consumers, uh, customers, and other businesses and maybe change the system along the way. We started with our products, using materials that caused less harm to the environment. We gave away 1% of sales each year. We became a certified B Corporation, which a B Corp is certified to do its in the public good, uh, and became a California Benefit Corporation, writing our values into our corporate charter so they would be preserved. More recently, in 2018, we changed the company's purpose to be, we're in the business to save our home planet. While we're doing our best to address the environmental crisis, it's not enough. We needed to find a way to put more money into fighting the crisis while keeping the company's values intact. One option was to sell Patagonia and donate all the money. But we couldn't be sure a new owner would maintain our values and keep our team of people around the world employed. Another path was to take the company public. What a disaster that would have been. Even public companies with good intentions are under too much pressure to create short-term gain at the expense of long-term viability and responsibility. Truth be told, there were no good options available, so we created our own. Instead of going public, you could say we're going purpose. Instead of extracting value from nature and transforming it into wealth for investors, we'll use the wealth Patagonia creates to protect the source of all wealth. Here's how it works. And I'm going to get into a bit of an explanation here aside from his letter. So there are two types of stock at Patagonia, voting shares and non-voting shares. If you own a non-voting share, you don't get to have an influence in voting on the company's policies. If you own a voting share, you do get to have a vote on it. Roughly 98% of Patagonia's stock is uh, non-voting. 2% is voting. So back to his article. 100% of the company's voting stock, which is 2% of their company, transfers to the Patagonia Purpose Trust created to protect the company's values. And 100% of the non-voting stock, which is 98% of the rest of all of the stock, has been given to the Holdfast Collective, a nonprofit dedicated to fighting the environmental crisis and defending nature. The funding will come from Patagonia. Each year, the money we make after reinvesting in the business, and he also clarified later that they will be holding aside a bit of money for unexpected expenses like a pandemic, which makes sense. Yep. Each year, the money we make after reinvesting in the business will be distributed as a dividend to help fight the crisis. It's been nearly 50 years since we began our experiment in responsible business, and we're just getting started. If we have any hope of a thriving planet, much less a thriving business, 
50 years from now, it is going to take all of us doing what we can with the resources we have. This is another way we've found to do our part. Despite its immensity, the Earth's resources are not infinite, and it's clear we've exceeded its limits. But it's also resilient. We can save our planet if we commit to it. Gave his company 98% of its shares to a 501c4 not-for-profit collective that invests in Earth and tries to do good things. And the 2% of their company um, that they did not give to them went to a trust that he, his family, and a few other members of his board are going to serve on to make sure that the company maintains the values that they established. So it's not going to be one of those instances where, you know, you sell a patent for diabetes uh, insulin for a dollar and then it goes to an evil corporation not expecting it to. It's going to be we control the company still. And the profits after reinvesting and paying our workers go to Earth. So they are still a for profit business, but that is very different. Um, and he's also made headlines quite a bit for his work in um, employee fairness, treating his employees well. Um, so it's it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Um, Bloomberg is critiquing the move because, of course, they are um, with the headline Patagonia billionaire who gave up company skirts $700 million tax hit. Um, basically saying that by giving the company to a not-for-profit and keeping the voting stock in a trust, he doesn't have to pay the taxes he would have had to have paid had he sold it outright. I mean, that is fair. And and he still gets to keep control of the company, which is fair, but also... He does have to still pay taxes. He has to pay $17.5 million in taxes for giving this to the Holdfast Collective. So, yeah, it's a, 700... It's a much better way to dodge taxes than other practices, at least. I mean, I don't even know that it was built as a tax-dodging mechanism. Because... There are so many easier ways yeah. to dodge taxes I than agree. giving it to a not-for-profit. And his company, I mean, the man is worth billions. He was a billionaire yesterday. But now that he only owns 2% of his stock, with his trust being in charge of it, he doesn't have that net worth. Like, it's it's interesting. There are... When we talk about how much people are worth like you know elon musk 250 billion or whatever jeff bezos 200 billion whatever rihanna one and a half billion because of her makeup company we assess their worth based on the value of the stock that they hold and not the amount of liquid cash that they have and who influences the stock prices the people who own them so they can basically make their own wealth go up exponentially without making a single dollar more. 
It's remarkable. So this is kind of a good way of making sure that when the company continues to make profits, you know, after reinvesting in the business, because you if you're running a business that is a for profit capitalist business, you want to do that and paying their workers and holding back a little bit for unexpected expenses. Everything else is basically going to a not for profit collective to earth. Like. I, I, I don't know that I can be mad about that in all honesty. I That's don't disagree. Like more of this. Like, I, I know it's not the most socialist thing in the world of me to say, but absent systemic change, he's doing something to try to help with the money and influence that he has. Yes. Now, that said, I'm not going to go run out and buy one of their coats. Their coats are expensive as hell. <laughs> They're like $110 on sale. But good for him, though. All right. And that will I think that's it. That will do it for this week. I this has been News Dive with Shane and Asher. We will talk to you again next week. Follow the show on all our social media. Instagram, TikTok, Twitch, YouTube, Twitter. Just search news. Basically, every social media platform. Just search. Just search that news exists. dive or Google News Dive. And then I'm going to do that. I'm going to see what comes up first. And then we will see you next week. Have a good week, everyone. All right, have a good one. And playing us out this week will be so many 9-11s by Rathbone in honor of 9-11.
Explain our remorselessness 